Greetings, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to explain how I will be sharing what I'm about to share. There's a scripture verse in 1 Peter chapter 4 that says, If any man minister, let him minister as the oracles of God. Actually, more accurately, it's saying is, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is what I will seek to do in this message, as I do in all of my messages. I will seek to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through me what he would be saying to you as an individual who, in the foreknowledge of God, has come across this message, as well as to the corporate body of Christ around the world and whoever else. I am praying that this message will come by the Spirit of God for this particular time as to what he would be saying to you and to the body of Christ. There's a scripture in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, where John, in awe of the angel that is presenting the truths before him and the revelations of God, falls down in awe before the angel, and the angel forbids him to worship. And he says to John, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. And he says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worship that the spirit of prophecy comes forth, which involves God's word, coming forth out of us to speak the truth to one another so that it is not just our words, but God's. It involves being in a conscious state of worship. And that is what I am seeking to do here, is to speak in a prophetic level of ministry. And my prayer is that it would point you to Jesus Christ, as it says in that verse, worship God for what? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What testifies of Christ is worship out of a pure heart. And out of that flows prophecy, which basically means words that are coming from God and not our own, that go beyond our own selves to be carried into his spirit. And so I am seeking to minister to you this day, and I believe God is leading at this time for me to speak from the book of Revelation. I already gave a message recently, an overview of the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, that is specifically speaking to what will happen from the time when the book was written around 70 AD by the Apostle John as he recorded it, as he received the message from the angel of the Lord and from Jesus Christ himself. That after his resurrection was revealed to him. I now want to begin to do a series where I will speak on each chapter of the book of Revelation. 
At one time, I did memorize the whole book, and I kept on going over and over it as the memory faded, but have not done that for some time. But I do not prepare any significant measure of notes. I just basically spend a half an hour on each chapter, including the making of notes, and then speak the message. Sometimes, most of the time, immediately after. In this case, not immediately after, but soon after doing these things the other day. So much for all of the introduction. So what I want to do first is just read chapter one of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And of all things that he saw, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten from the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins and made us unto his God kings and priests. Unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it on to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. 
and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. That is Revelations chapter 1. Heavenly Father, I ask that there would be, by your Holy Spirit, revelation granted unto me, even as I am speaking, that you would lead me and the body of Christ and all that hear into all truth, as your word says, that I would be hidden in the fear of God and great humility so that you would be glorified in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. This is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, the reason the book of Revelation is called Revelation is because the whole book, the main focus of the book is the revealing of who God is. God is in Jesus Christ. To you personally, whether you be someone that has never heard this message or ever been exposed to even reading the Bible, as you are hearing this message, I believe that you will receive revelation. If you are open to reality, open to truth. Now I will explain many of the things as far as the meanings of words such as truth and of the understanding of God because in this chapter and in this book it is about who God is revealed to the whole world and in particular, his ultimate purpose to reveal himself in the fullness of his love and glory and majesty to a corporate bride that is taken from every background and diversity and brought into a deep, reciprocal unity, first with God and with one another, that produces an economy of life 
that is ever enlarging in creativity and without an iota of corruption. What we see now in the world are systems of government that are filled with corruption, which is the reason they never last, because they have a destructive principle that operates. The whole world system has a destructive principle. In this first verse here, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. To show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Now that God gave unto him is referring to Christ. So here we have Christ being revealed, but also being the revealer. And he shows it and signifies it by an angel, by a special messenger to John, the apostle. We have not only the Bible, but we have the writings of the early church fathers. Those that were, many of them, the earliest church fathers, were discipled by the Apostle John. And there are accounts of many more details of his life in the writings of those that were discipled by him. For those that are new, the understanding of Revelation is more than just coming into an intellectual knowledge. It is something that is of the heart. It is where the eyes of the heart are open to receive light. Light that has dimension, that has life. It's not just merely some outward vision. I've only had one vision in my life. It happened in 1975. I don't talk about it a lot. But my eyes were opened, and it was an open vision where the whole room filled with light. There was three other people that bore witness to what happened there that night at around one in the morning after we had been praying and fasting for three days. And I'm not going to go into sharing that except to say this. That I was seeing a dimension that was so real that it was far more real than the physical realm. In the physical realm, what you see is outward. But in this realm, the outward was very much evident. But it had dimension so that it went right into your being and affected your being. In my experience, I had been praying weeks before that because there's a scripture that says that if you keep my commandments, I will reveal the Son to you. And I had been saying to my friends and to the Lord and knocking and asking God over and over, God, I've experienced the immersion of your spirit, that is the baptism of your spirit, where, my, where it overflowed in tongues. I've experienced that many a time, the infilling of the Holy Spirit 
overflowing in tongues. And even that involves revelation. But I've been saying, Lord, I've never experienced this, where you say that you will give us a revelation of Christ if we keep your commandments, which is basically to love God with our whole being and to love one another as Christ loved us. That means to forgive those even that offend us as brothers and sisters or even those that aren't brothers and sisters. To have a love that on the one hand doesn't compromise and condone evil in them, but on the other hand, even though being willing to be misunderstood and misjudged, will continue to show mercy and forgiveness and even admit one's faults more, even though they have far less offense than the offender. Be willing to admit those few little things in order to humble themselves before the offender as Christ humbled himself to the death of the cross in order to win that person out of the deception of offense that is in their lives, that is holding them in captivity to darkness and death. And so the Lord promises that if we keep his commandments, he will reveal the Son to us. Now, I want to share, before I go into a little bit more, about my experience where a few weeks after praying this way and mentioning it to my friends, I had the unexpected experience of a very powerful open vision, but it also was very impacting on my inner being because it had dimension that entered my very soul. That is what I needed. Because in my case, I had two pressures that had come to a climax that were surrounding this vision that I experienced in 1975. And one was great condemnation. I had been struggling as a young man with lust and the desire for a woman. No, I didn't end up in a relationship of sin with a woman, but I had impure motives that were causing me to fulfill those things in my imagination in various ways and things that I did, wandering off, looking for this and looking for that. I don't need to go into that. I deeply repented of that, but the devil was condemning me, and so was my own heart, saying, that someone else was going to take my place and I would be like King Saul and this other person that happened to be in the room when I had this vision would be the one taking my place. That I would be like the children of Israel that were cast off in the wilderness and perished because I had failed to be pure and had wandered. Now the other pressure I had was the pressure of great hunger to know God to experience 
an intimate relationship of love and fellowship with God so that I desired this revelation and even was at this time with my friends on three days of fasting. Without going into the details of the vision, I will say this, that the room filled with light, that I saw the holiness of God The holiness of God is the integrity of his love that is as a flaming fire of judgment against all that is contrary to his love. The holiness of God is the absolute pure integrity of God's love that will not tolerate corruption, that will not tolerate that which is contrary to love. And I'll just briefly define love the highest form of love who God is, is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate self-gratification. To the point that Christ entered, or God entered time and space in the full expression, he expressed himself into time and space in Jesus Christ and humbled himself suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, to take judgment, the judgment of your sin upon him so that you could repent and be reconciled to God. He poured out his life and his blood, the blood that did not come from Adam, but came from the impregnation of the very creative spirit of God himself that impregnated the Virgin Mary with the blood of God and poured it out so that you could be washed and cleansed and made white as snow if you repent and receive his substitutionary sacrifice for your sins on the cross. I'm not here to get into all of that right now. What I want to share is this. In regards to these things, that love, God's love is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification. So Christ condescended and humbled himself more, as I mentioned. What for? for the most lasting, highest good, which is that he might bring on to God the Father a corporate bride, that he might inherit a corporate bride as well. I'm just going to deviate a minute to explain to those that are new an understanding of the one true God. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. As it says in both the New and Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. But you have to understand that for God to be indeed God, there are certain things that are characteristic or that characterize the one true God, apart from a counterfeit monotheistic God. 
apart from anyone else that would claim to be God. And I just want to briefly mention these characteristics. I've mentioned this love that is in its integrity is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it, which is the defensive aspect of God's love. If it was not that, how possibly would there be the containment of unlimited life and unlimited power without it being dissipated by corruption? What is ultimately trustworthy is such a quality of love that can contain unlimited power in life without being corrupted by it or without it being dissipated and is indicative that God is the very source of life and of unlimited power. And that love has an integrity, an innate nature of integrity and purity that is as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary. And that is the foundation from which can spring forth creativity without corruption that is ultimately manifested in a love that is so great that this love is shown to be ultimate by the fact that it is not only totally pure, but it is transcended in its purity from the foundation of its purity in the power to provide you mercy if you would repent, to assure you mercy and forgiveness. And you could never trust a God that could not assure you mercy and forgiveness. There has to be both aspects. There has to be the total integrity to trust. What is ultimately trustworthy? What I'm describing here is something that is ultimately trustworthy and could not be higher. It is ultimate in trustworthiness, and it has these two aspects. The first aspect is represented in nature as a negative, which is the negative symbol in electricity, or the negative symbol in math. There's the negative and the positive. It is this purity I'm talking about. It is, represents the foundation, horizontal line. It represents cutting off all that out of its own free will would go against the perfection of the being of God's love and its purity. And out of this foundation, this represented in a horizontal line, springs forth the positive, which is in the symbol of the cross. The ultimate positive and negative of the universe, as it were, for sake of illustration. And this creativity was ultimately manifested in its ultimate trustworthiness, and that God had within his very being the capacity to take judgment upon himself for those out of their own free will through indirect temptation via the physical body, the physical realm. Those who have rebelled in that way against God, not going directly against his blessing and his presence, sitting against the, the Holy Spirit of God, but indirectly through the physical realm. And God, even before the world was created, had within his being not only the capacity 
to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, which was manifested in the center of history in Christ coming to this world. But he had also the reality reality of that. And this is mentioned in the book of Revelations, chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. What that's saying is that Jesus Christ was slain before the plans for creating this world were laid. How is that so? Well, this is where I want to just briefly explain something else. That many that don't come from a background where they've read the Bible or from a background that is Christian, genuine Christian background, do not understand this. It is very clear that there's only one God, not three gods. And for God to be almighty, and this is getting a little off what I was just talking about, but it must be explained to go on. He must be able to rule the ultimate aspects of, of all existence. He must be able to be in conscious intelligence, in personage, in other words, in order to rule the ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space, beyond the time and space realm, and in the time and space realm, which is the creation that he has made, and filling all space within the creation realm and what other dimensions may be inherent in all of that. And so God is described as the Father. The word Father means originator. It also has the understanding of one that has experience through time. And God as the Father is understood to be the aspect of God that is in government by personage beyond the time and space realm that can see the end from the beginning. The Son, the word Son means expression. The Son is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm. Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God. He was fully expressed into the time and space realm. In fact, he was seen by Theophany even before he was born into the world by various great men of God, such as Abraham. Around Genesis 15 or so, I think. And so you have God, in order to be God, to rule beyond time and space, he must be in person, each beyond that realm, as the Father, seeing the end from the beginning, as the originator, as the Son, the full expression of the Father, into the time and space realm. The word Son meaning expression. In Hebrews 1.3 it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. And then you have the Holy Spirit filling all space. In omnipresence, God is attached to every particle of existence. He can be in person each everywhere at the same time and become creative and do anything, including reversing the molecules to bring back the dead. God as the Holy Spirit, 
and personage. And so there's one God governing in three aspects of existence. And if God could not be in personage to fill, time, fill all space, and if he could not be in personage in time and space, nor beyond time and space, then he would not be God. The name of God is mentioned in the Bible in the Old Testament as Elohim, which means the Almighty's one. In fact, in Genesis 1, it says, God says, let us make man in our image, but it is one God. Now, that's just to explain that understanding of God. Going back now, in order to explain the being of God, as I was describing, there's two characteristics in the being of God. The first is the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love, out of which springs the creativity of God without corruption, that can ever enlarge in greater and greater realms of creativity and fulfillment and go on forever without end. The second law of thermodynamics is a law that's observed by science that says that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of greater and greater disorder to total destruction. The being of God is anti-destructive. It is the very opposite. It is the ultimate plus represented in the positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross that reveals the greatness of God's love, that he has the power to provide you with a destiny. You can have the assurance of forgiveness and of a destiny that goes on forever and ever as part of the corporate bride of God, of people being drawn out from every background and kindred and tongue and nation. Every background from the most vile criminal that's been converted to Christ to the most noble king, all coming into unity because the secret of unity is in being reconciled to God. And oh, I could talk long for this. So I'm not going to get into much more on this. So there's two ultimate aspects of the being of God that make God indeed God, that reveal that he is the ultimate trustworthiness that cannot be more perfect. It is the purity and integrity of his love and it's in transcendence with the power to take judgment upon himself so that he has the power to forgive those who repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice that was revealed in Jesus Christ in the center of history. And before Christ came, from the very time of Adam and Eve, there was the same message, that there is one God the Almighty's one, and that he has provided a way of forgiveness because his being is so perfect that there is within his being already the reality of being a perfect atoning sacrifice that, so that they recognize from the very beginning that the source of forgiveness was not in an animal sacrifice, it was in God granting the forgiveness. The animal sacrifice could only cleanse the physical body to allow the Spirit of God to dwell with their soul and spirit in fellowship. 
And after Christ died, the soul and spirit could be cleansed so that there could also be the indwelling of God's spirit. And that's the difference. No time to get into that. I want to focus on this chapter here. But for those that are new, I want them to have a little understanding of the character and being of God because this book is all about God being revealed to the whole world and in particular to those that become his corporate bride. And so, it is the holiness of God and the mercy of God that reveals a constitution of love that is so ultimate that it cannot be greater and that anything less would not be ultimately trustworthy. And this is the evidence of the one true God. And any other quality of being gives evidence of that which is counterfeit. In fact, it is innate within the conscience of man, though he may not be intellectually grasping it, or only partially grasping it, that there is within the consciousness of man that, that which they know what is good. You see, our conscience, if it is not contaminated by the parents, putting distortion into the child, and that child is brought up in an environment where there isn't the distortion of rebellion against God in various traditions and practices and cultures, then there is within that child a conscience that innately knows what is good. And in that knowing of what, have, what is good, there is the consciousness that there must be what is ultimately trustworthy and that that quality that is ultimately good must involve such integrity that it will not tolerate corruption and yet be able yet to still provide destiny. And that is only found in the power of God to forgive because of such a high, such a purity of love. So I've explained the being and character of God. And now what I want to do in this message, and I'm just looking here at the time, because I forgot to check my time out. I got lots of time yet, that's great. I want to begin to share more about this particular chapter. And so Jesus Christ himself is revealing himself to John through an angel. And it says in verse 2 that John bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. This book is a te testifies of Christ and is the very testimony of Jesus Christ. And if I was doing an overview of the book, I would point that out. For example, Revelations chapter 5 describes the scene going on to bring forth the reality of God's being in mercy in atoning sacrifice into the world, into the time and space realm. I will not go there right now. John is a man of integrity, a man that fears God. And so his record is a trustworthy record. He's not someone that would ever lie. 
And he says this, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. So it's not merely a matter of reading the book of Revelation. It's a matter of having a heart that's open to hear and actually let it instill into your being. True hearing, as described by the Bible, is an understanding that the heart is open to truth. It is open to the reality of who God is. People are not open to the truth. In fact, the word of God says in John that he that comes to the light comes to the light that his deeds might be reproved, that he may know that what he is doing is out of God and not out of himself. But it also says there in John that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And this was very clearly seen in the life of Cain, who became jealous of Abel and slew him. Cain brought a sacrifice of his own self-sufficiency before God. He began to develop a distorted view of who God is. Probably he was offended at the consequences of the integrity of God's being of love with such terrible judgments upon the earth. The consequences of death, the consequences of thorns and of all the sweat and the labor of the toil. And so there was offense as he began to work and toil and try to, to fight against the consequences of all these things that had happened because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And so he begins to perceive God as an enigma. His heart becomes gradually alienated. He looks at God at, from a distance and he begins to see God out of a self-delusional hardness of independence from God. And so he still sees that God is the ultimate authority, that he's holy, but he's lost sight of the goodness that is behind the holiness of God. He's no longer seeing God as good. Oh, he may th believe intellectually that God is good, but in his heart he's not really acknowledging the goodness of God. He's now seeing God as very authoritarian and demanding. And he's totally lost sight of the goodness that is behind the holiness of God. I want to give an understanding here that what contains unlimited life and power in a way that is good, that is, that is creative without corruption and ever enlarging, and greater and greater fulfillment and meaning and purpose, satisfaction that has no emptiness or darkness or void in it. That is 
contained by the holiness of God, the integrity of his love that requires judgment of all, all corruption. So what God's being of holiness, that is the integrity of, of his love, contains is wholeness, ultimate wholeness. And what issues out of ultimate wholeness is ultimate beauty. And what issues out of ultimate beauty is a glory that is unspeakable in brightness and beauty. When we see the beauty in creation, it is a reflection of the ultimate source of beauty, who is God. King David, in one of his prayers, said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple all the days of my life. He saw that the holiness of God was good that it contained wholeness and it contained beauty, that God was the very source of life, of fulfillment, of beauty. And so he had a great reverence for God. He treated God as precious. When you really love someone, you treat them as precious and you seek fellowship and intimacy with them. You don't become hard and alienated in your heart and develop a self-delusional, idolatrous perception of one true God, like Cain did. And so Cain began to see God as someone that he had to appease because all he could see was that he was dictatorial and demanding and demanded submission. And so the result was he believed that he could do it by giving all of his own hard self-effort towards God and bringing all of that. Whereas Abel recognized the greatness of God's goodness and that he could never, never meet the demand of such a holy God, but that this God was good, that he was merciful, that he could bring an animal as a symbol of sacrifice, of atonement, and be received of God because in the being of God there was such a perfection that he was already a perfect atoning sacrifice. Even before the world was created, there was that quality in his being. It still had to become a reality in the time and space realm for for us to grow in God and to first to receive God and grow in God and come out of the shells of self involves time and process. But from a positional standpoint, God was able to grant forgiveness. Yes, it wasn't until after Christ that the soul and spirit could be cleansed. But that's because in the time and space realm, there must be process. There must be the, the, rea- the growth factor that involves time. But the granting of forgiveness was already there because God's being had the power without contradicting his integrity to forgive from the very time of Adam and Eve. There's a blessing that is promised to those that have an openness to the truth that do not sear their conscience As I mentioned, the child that has a conscience that hasn't been exposed to the distortion of parents and of all the other things will be open and will be aware 
of what points to good. The conscience awakens us to fear God, and the fear of God is this. It is choosing to recognize the reality of God for who he is that bears witness with our inner conscience instead of us hiding from the inner conscience that points towards the reality of who God is in this ultimate negative and positive, in the holiness that is transcendent in mercy. That is the constitution and essence of what holds goodness. And our conscience is that awareness of what is good and what points to what is ultimately good, who is God. That could only be in such a constitution to be ultimately good as a God that is totally pure in holiness but transcendent with the power to assure mercy and forgiveness by perfect atoning sacrifice which he did in Jesus Christ on the cross, but which was already a reality in his being, in the Son, in the expression of his being before creation. If you are open to the revelation of Jesus Christ that is in this book of Revelation, you are promised to be blessed because you're being open to who God is in his reality. You are choosing to genuinely fear God. And when you choose to genuinely fear God, that is a choice to be receptive to the holiness of his being without rebellion, recognizing your need of his mercy recognizing that you deserve judgment because of the holiness of his being, acknowledging it and bringing it, instead of hiding from that reality and denying it, bringing it to the light and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because you have faith in God's being, being so pure in love, so transcendent in love, that he can be a perfect atoning sacrifice as he has indeed become in Jesus Christ in this world, in the time and space realm. John to the seven churches, verse four, which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Grace and peace. Grace is favor from God that is undeserved. In the Hebrew, the word mercy contains the meaning of favor as well in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they differentiate. Mercy is the understanding of receiving mercy when you deserve judgment. And grace is the understanding of even going beyond that to show favor to you. From him which is and which was and which is to come. This is speaking of God and his being as the Father that transcends the time and space realm for he was and is and is to come. He transcends the beginning from the end for he is beyond time and space and government as the Father. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, 
Why would God be describing himself as seven spirits? Some people might say, that's polytheism. That's a belief in many gods. No, it isn't. This is God describing his Holy Spirit, which is that aspect of the being of God that is in omnipresence, in total personage, but in omnipresence, everywhere at the same time he can be in personage and be in creative activity to do as he wills because his spirit is attached. His spirit is attached to every single particle of existence that he has created. And some secular physicists that aren't even Christians have concluded through all the studies of particle physics with the large colliders such as the Hadron Collider and all the things that they've put together in mathematics that there is something that pervades the whole universe that is exactly like the neurons of the brain and that there's intelligence that is attached to every particle of existence. And they came to this conclusion without having any religious background. And you can watch the video of one of these people on my Life After Death videos at ultimatemeaning.com being interviewed and drawing that conclusion. The seven spirits of God are reflected in the natural realm in the seven colors of light that come out of the rainbow. But we know that that light that comes in seven aspects, in, when put all together, is one bright white light, which represents perfection. The number seven in the Bible is always a representation of that which cannot be made more perfect. And so this is saying, when it says the seven spirits of God which are before his throne, the seven aspects of the perfection of the being of God that are emanating forth as <clears throat> seven colors of light, as it were, in the natural realm, <clears throat> which represent different aspects of the perfection of the being of God. Now, I did mention some possibilities of what that could be. I don't have any angel that told me this or any special thing, but I'm going to try to pick out something I did write on this today, which was from another section of the book of Revelations in chapter 2 to the church of Sardis. And I said this, the seven spirits of God are the perfection of the seven aspects of the spirit of God, just as there are seven colors that make up the rainbow and light. The secret to overcoming spiritual death is in these seven aspects of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. I believe they are first, the, I'm not sure I got this right here, but this is a possibility. The first one is the fear of God, which, represent, which is represented in purple. Now, I don't have the colors before me, so I can't give you the colors, but let's start off with the purple. And out of that springs forth the revelation of mercy and love you see, it's only when you genuinely fear God that you can possibly recognize the greatness of God's mercy towards you personally. And when you recognize the greatness of God's mercy towards you personally, you will recognize the greatness of his love towards you. And so the second one is the revelation of the love of God that springs out of the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy that springs out of the fear of God. And the third one is the faith, which is the response to the recognition of who God is. We trust our spirit responds when we recognize the greatness of God's love, that he's so ultimately trustworthy in love, we can respond and receive his mercy. And so the third aspect 
of this seven spirits of God and its perfection, which is also in the triunity of God without need, of course, for mercy and forgiveness because God is not in sin. But there is an aspect that is brought out even in the being of God, except in the being of God, it's not out of a consciousness of sin that God recognizes the greatness of the creativity of God. In the being of God, there is a unity and a oneness so that God is one beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. But it's like this. The Son perceives the Father in this integrity of love, and it's so beautiful that he says to the Father, oh, I see such glorious creativity coming out of the holiness of your love, Father, that I'm just wanting to, uh, to just respond and, and, and reciprocate this love. And so I'm receiving this revelation of your love, Father, and now I want to respond back in expressing it to you. And so that's the response of faith in the triunity of the being of God. So there is, in, a, in the mystery of the unity of the Godhead, also the exercise of expressing ourselves back towards God's love in exercising our soul and spirit in a dimension like a hand opening up into greater and greater enlargement. For us, it's like a clenched fist before we're saved and suddenly we see how great God's mercy is and that we can receive it and then our pride is broken and we open up and surrender and then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with our spirit and then that hand can't close because the Spirit of God is dwelling with our soul and spirit in communion. And now we have a new nature which is described in 1 John when it says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So faith involves our soul and spirit in open trust of persuasion in who God is in his love to us personally that allows the Spirit of God to dwell in our being, and then as we reciprocate, faith works by the revelation of this love. As the Bible says, faith works by love. And so now what we have is this aspect of the being of God in perfection that is faith, and also in our being when we receive Christ. And I really don't know what all of these seven perfections are, but I am giving what I think they could be. The next one out of that is thirst for God that leads to greater enlargement in the being of God, to greater realms of creativity and us thirst for God brings breakthrough to cast off greater and greater layers of deception of self until we come into total liberty through perseverance but it is the thirst that is the secret to conquering the deception and the thirst comes out of seeking God which comes out of the faith that is being exercised in the persuasion of the revelation of who we have, that we have experienced and continue to experience as we seek God. And so the fourth perfection of the being of God and of our being is that there is a thirst 
which is a thirst that is not unsatisfying. One is always satisfied in God, but is a thirst unto greater enlargement in God out of present satisfaction in God. And so it says in Revelations 19 that the secret to overcoming all things, it gives it, it mentions the secret is involved in thirst because it says this. Um, actually, it's not Revelations 19. It's Revelations, I believe, 21. And it says this in Revelations 21. He, and he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Who is it that receives of the fountain of the water of life? Those that are thirst. And then it says this. In the very next verse, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. So the secret to overcoming is to not allow our thirst to be quenched by the temporal lying vanities of this world. They will seek to corrupt our motives so that they're not pure and we are living onto temporal things rather than putting our identity in God. That is the secret to overcoming. It is thirst. Now, out of the thirst comes forth the other aspects as well, which I bring here. Then we enter in to a oneness with God and each other. Now there comes the perfection of the being of the Spirit of God in unity out of this. And that unity begins to become a greater and a greater and a stronger bond with God and with each other. And so there's the unity. And then out of the unity, the next one that comes is the wisdom to build the kingdom of God. Now there is the unity that allows, there's such a oneness with God that one is able to know how to put things together because they're no longer in the time and space realm allowing their focus to be on temporal things of this world so they can make choices that are wise, that see beyond the immediate. It is the failure to see beyond the immediate that causes us to make wrong choices. It is entering into such a relationship with God beyond this realm because our identity is in heavenly places beyond the time and space realm that allows us to have the wisdom to make choices that are not dictated by immediate gratifications that have an element of corruption in them. So wisdom is the execution of knowledge without corruption so that it can be go enlarged continually in greater and greater creativity. So we have the perfection of the spirit of God and the spirit of wisdom, which is the right application of knowledge without corruption. And then lastly, in these seven perfections of the being of God, we have the power of God to conquer all, including death itself. God, when he dwell, comes to dwell in his corporate bride, is working himself into that corporate bride as 
mentioned by Watchman Nee in his book. It's like putting a hand into a glove. It's gradually working in, but once it's in that glove, there is tremendous power. And so we have the power of God, the perfection of the Spirit of God and power. And I will not continue. And so we have these seven spirits of God, which are before the throne in omnipresence going forth into all the earth. It is talked about in Revelations chapter 5 as well, where it says this, describing Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. And it says this, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now I'm looking at the time again. Wow, it's over an hour, but I'm going to continue to, to do this first chapter here, and I want to bring out some very important things. I don't mind preaching for an hour and a half. This is too important. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus Christ is the first begotten from the dead. He is the one that conquered death because he's God. And I could go into a lot about that. You see, first of all, I will point out that in Isaiah 33, verse 5 and 6, it describes Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and it says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. The reason the fear of God is the treasure of Jesus Christ, that he treasures that more than anything, is because in the secret of the fear of God is the secret of abiding in oneness with the Father in these aspects of the seven spirits of God that I brought out. It starts all out of the foundation of the fear of God. It is the foundation for unity. It is the secret for even oneness in the triunity of God. And so in this particular chapter here, when we're describing this power of Christ over death, remember that the last one I mentioned was the perfection of the Spirit of God and power. Now, that perfection of the Spirit of God and power is also noted in Romans 1.4 in my understanding that God has given me of the Word of God. And it says this in Romans 1.4, that Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What's that saying? Now, the spirit of holiness is what has no corruption in it. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, it is true that he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he said that, did he lose his faith in God? No. That was a way of relieving a burden. 
That was a way of relieving what was so contradictory to what seemed to be just. But Christ always trusted in the Father. He said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He had total trust in the Father. He never allowed his spirit to get into a state like a clenched fist where his trust in the Father was broken and he became like Cain, where God became an enigma to him and he was in rebellion and bitterness before the Father. No, he trusted in the Father. And he maintained that state of selfless trust like an open hand of surrender, which represents a state of selflessness. When our faith is in what is ultimately trustworthy and not in ourselves, we are in a state of selflessness. When we are trusting in anything else, like ourselves or anyone else, whatever we're trusting in is where we're putting our worth and our glory and our worship. But Christ always trusted in the Father. And so there was never the breaking of union with the Father. And so Christ had no corruption in his soul and spirit. It was totally pure in trust before the Father. And because it was pure in trust, there was the power of God through the Father to raise him from the dead. So Jesus Christ is the first begotten from the dead and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then it says this. Behold, verse 7, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, in this particular passage, we have an understanding that these clouds are not literal clouds. This is clouds that are described as the multitudes of the saints that return with Christ. And this is mentioned in Hebrews 12, where it says that seeing you're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, see that you lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset you and run the race. It's describing a cloud of witnesses like the great stadiums, and it's described like a cloud. And Christ here is returning with the multitudes of the saints, as it says in Jude, he will come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment when he returns upon the earth. Every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. So when the Lord returns, as he's describing in this book of Revelation, every eye shall see him. Now, I want to bring out something that comes to my mind at this point that might seem to be going back <clears throat> a bit. But in this chapter, it says that the time is at hand in Revelations here. Now, I'm, I'm trying to spot where that verse is that says that, that the time is at hand. It's in verse 3. It says, There were to keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. What that is saying there is not that 
everything is going to happen in the time that John is writing this, but that the time is soon after John writes this that there will be the unfolding of everything that's written in the book of Revelation. And indeed, that does begin to unfold from around the time of Constantine, because what is described in Revelations chapter 6, which I mention in my video, which is an overview of the book of Revelation, is that the first four seals are time periods. The first one being the white horse, which represents conquest, which is world colonization through the gospel that happened with Constantine and from that time on. And that became the prominent horse of that time period. And then you've got the other time periods, the red horse of war and so on. And the fifth seal is God's response to them, is describing the martyrs slain in all of those time periods. And the sixth seal is God's vengeance and judgment, response of judgment because of all those that had been martyred in those five, four time periods from the time of Constantine. So that's what it's mentioning when it talks about the time is at hand in verse three. But now going back to this verse where it says, every eye shall see him. How is it possible that when Jesus Christ returns, every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him? We know from other scriptures, such as Isaiah 26, which I will turn to now, that we get a more clear picture of what this return is like. And it says this, and it's describing the dead coming to life. And I'll start with verse 19 of Isaiah 26, and it says this, Thy dead man shall live together with my dead body. Shall they rise? Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her slain and shall no more cover. It, it, actually, it says this. It says the earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So what we have is a description here of the Lord returning and there being such an emanation of his life power, the, the dead, the, the, the literal, the earth starts folding back in time and the earth is no longer disclosing its slain. The blood is actually coming out of the ground. Things seem to be coming back. In this chapter, chapter 1, it also describes that they will call for the mountains. It, later on, I shouldn't say it says it here. It doesn't say it here. All it describes here is that every eye will see him and they also, 
that pierced him. And they're wailing because of him. But later on, it describes that when he returns, they will call for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide in them from the face of him that sits upon the throne. That's in Revelations chapter 6, where it's showing the broad span of time from the time of Constantine to the very end. And this sixth seal, which is God's judgment and vengeance upon those that have been martyred, they're calling for the mountains and the rocks to follow them. And so there's this time when God arises to punish the inhabitants of the earth. But when he begins to return, his presence causes the dead to come forth to life. Now we know from Revelations 20 that there are two resurrections. There's the resurrection of those that are walking very close to God, which happens first as Christ returns to rule on the earth for a thousand years. And then a thousand years later, when Satan is loosed out of his prison, there is the second resurrection of all people and the great white throne judgment and the whole universe is consumed in fire and recreated into a new heaven and a new earth as all people stand before God. But this here is a description of the fact that everyone will see him. Everyone will be raised from the dead. There will come a time when the earth will not be able to hold back those that have died in it. They will start to come back to life. In fact, it even says in Revelations chapter 9, before the Lord returns, when he's pouring his judgments upon the earth, this is just before he returns, that in those days men shall seek death and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. They will be under such torment from the judgment of God. You know, it's like this. People love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to the light because they don't want their pride to be broken, because they want to be their own God. And so they will justify themselves with all kinds of beliefs that will justify them being their own God and in independence from the very life source, the very source of love, the very source of life, the very source of wholeness. And they are like a black hole in outer space, trying to fill a void in their being that can never be satisfied, that can never experience wholeness and completeness. A black hole that pulls everything in around it in a destructive way. It is this state of being in independence of God that causes one to make choices that are destructive onto their own undoing and the undoing of those around them. It is like a hell in their heart because they're always grasping to fill the void that was only made to be filled with God for you were created to find your fulfillment in fellowship with God. But because there's that void, you were trying so hard to fill it and you were running from the light. And the more you run from the light, the more your heart can be hardened and the more harder it can be for you to finally come back to the light. But there comes a point of decision in everyone's life where through the consequences of their wrong choices, the pressure gets great enough to break that hardness. The question is at that point of decision, will you choose 
to be hardened to the point where you choose to follow darkness rather than light, the devil rather than the truth? Or will you let your pride be broken and cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I can't find my own way. I know I can't find fulfillment in myself. I cry out to you for mercy. Will you be my life? Will you be my savior? Will you forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me? And I can assure you that God will hear the cry of those that come to the light. That finally, like the prodigal son, come to their senses and come to the saving knowledge that will bring them into destiny that goes on forever. And it says in the word of God, I has not seen nor heard, neither has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. But the day is coming. And the more people form belief systems such as evolution and all kinds of things to deny reality, and let me tell you, you can go to my website at ultimatemeaning.com and find all kinds of scientists that once were evolutionists that now have seen so many contradictions in that theory that they are strong believers in intelligent design and many of them are strong believers in God. It is the designer as well. And you can see that evolution is plainly a masterful deception of lies. There's all kinds of scientific evidence in every field that exposes its deception. And whenever they try to refute the answers that we give against it, their refuting answers are even more hollow. So you can choose to hide from the truth, but as time goes on, what is happening is there's more and more revelation of the reality of who God is. Right now, we don't see him literally returning, but the truth is getting greater and greater, and people are hardening themselves with more and more deceptive, evil belief systems that are becoming more and more dark, more and more sinister, more and more destructive to them and those around them. So that all they want to do is control others and be their own God. So we have universities that persecute people that dare to speak out against all the things that have been exposed in evolution as false because they're so fearful of losing their status and their prestige and their money. And I don't have time to go into that. But the time is coming when the truth will get greater and greater and people will hide more and more and harden their hearts more and more to the point that they will actually be the literal revealing of God from the heavens. And then they will, as described in Revelations chapter 6, cry for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide from the face of him that sits upon the throne. Why, it's already an hour and 22 minutes. Am I going to get through this chapter? I don't know. Probably not. The next verse says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. The Almighty, this is just a description of God as the Father beyond time and space. 
I, verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's been put on the Isle of Patmos. He's been persecuted. and I'm not going to go into all that detail. He hears behind him a great voices of a trumpet. Yes, God's voice is described as a trumpet. It is also described as the sword of the Spirit that comes out of his mouth as described in Revelations 19, where this shaft of light comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ to destroy the beast, as described in Revelations chapter 19, the last verse there. And I'm not going to go into it in detail, but it says, and the remnant, that's the ones that were with the beast, were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And the verse before that describes the Antichrist world ruler, the beast that is also thrown into the lake of fire. So, God's spirit is described as a two-edged sword in Hebrews 4.12. And the two edges of that sword are the two aspects of the being of God that I've described, which are the holiness of God and the mercy of God. The ultimate negative and the ultimate positive, as it were, of the universe for sake of illustration. And God is speaking by his spirit to the seven churches as a trumpet that is so piercing. And what God wants is for us to be open to the being of God. You see, what causes God to be light is his being of love in these two aspects, which is this ultimate negative and positive. What causes molecules to, to generate electricity we all know what that is. And it's an ultimate negative and positive. Around the nucleus of every atom are electrons spinning very strongly at high speeds, forming a hard shell. What that represents is the hard shell of people's hearts. And it's when they choose to fear God, to acknowledge this ultimate negative and positive, not some intellectual knowledge, but a deep turning from the heart when they awaken to the inner conscience that innately knows this ultimate good. And they cry out that that shell is broken and there's the flow of life, just like the flow of electricity. It is the sword of the spirit that pierces to the inner depths of one's being as described in Hebrews 4.12, where it says the word of God is sharp, 
as a two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, to the revealing of the very motives of the heart. And it is God that is wanting to do that to our lives personally. He wants us to always come before him just the way we first received Christ. And if we've never received Christ yet, to come to that place as I described, where there's a true turning in our heart from the fear of God that causes us to cry out of a true breaking of our pride for God to have mercy on us. And he will enter our being and flood it with the life of his eternal spirit and fill that void within our being that we've been grasping to fill. And then there's an ongoing process of learning to abide in this same way we received Christ. For that is the secret of abiding. And so this message is to the seven churches, exposing those things of deception that were in them, weaknesses. And these seven churches existed at that time, but they also represent the states of the church throughout history that God is seeking to purify from the seven aspects of weakness that were in these churches, which are emphasized with the seven aspects of the strength of the Spirit of God for each church. In each of these churches, there's a certain aspect of the being of God that is described as is now unfolding in the next verses that come up. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. This would represent the girdle of truth, which would represent the foundation of the being of God in, in that integrity that will not tolerate sin. It represents purity because the garment is pure and covers, and it represents the divinity of the being of God. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Again, we see that in God there is total purity, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. The Spirit of God is all-seeing. It is purifying. It sees all those things that are contrary to his love, and it is a blazing fire of judgment to purify all of that. His feet are like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And I don't have time because of how long I've been speaking in this message to go on, because now it's coming to an hour and a half. But again, when there's purity in our heart, then our motives, then we're motivated to walk with God and to walk in those places that God is leading us to walk and not to do our own thing and go our own way. And so that is represented in the burning feet. He had in his hand seven stars, representing his power to hold those that are leading the church in the place of authority to lead the church, to lead these seven churches, because the seven stars represent the seven bishops. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword in his countenance, and I made I explained the two-edged sword in his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And this represents the absolute glory that issues out of the being of God and such beauty and such brightness, such pure love 
And of course, then he describes how he has the keys of hell and death because as I mentioned, it is out of that that there is the power to conquer death and all of these things. And so he describes that he has the keys of hell and of death. And then he tells John to write the things which he's seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And this book is indeed about everything to the very end and consummation of time. And he then just describes the seven candlesticks which represent the seven churches and the seven stars which represent the bishops that are ruling those churches. And that is the book of Revelations chapter 1. So may God bless you and may you be awakened to be prepared for what is about to unfold in this next short period of history where the events in Revelation start to take place, such as asteroids breaking up and coming over the earth as hail and fire and burning a significant part of the vegetation in the Middle East. Watch for this to happen in the near future. When that begins to happen, that's the beginning of the judgments of God. That's mentioned in Revelations chapter, uh, pardon me, chapter, uh, uh, <laughs> I got it mixed up. That's re mentioned in Revelations chapter 8. After the period of silence, this long period of time in history where nothing has happened, this is going to begin to take place. Even as these major blood moons happen in the near future. Watch. Watch what happens in April. Watch what happens this October or September when that major blood moon comes over Israel, which is going to be at its highest point of magnification and over Israel. I don't have time to go into all of that. God bless you, and I'll look forward to continuing to minister from the book of Revelation. Thank you for listening and watching.